From WOUB News, you're listening to The Outlet, where campus meets community. I'm Michael Weirich. Each week on The Outlet, we bring you stories from Southeast Ohio and the surrounding region. This week on The Outlet, an Athens restaurant's struggle highlights flaws in local zoning codes. As we grow and business models change, we get um, um, some of these codes that become obsolete or need to be revised. So we, we, we need to constantly work on those, uh, those code changes uh, to keep up with the current times. And Federal Hawking's new football coach hopes to reinvigorate the Lancer spirit. To me, I see, I see value, I see relationship building, which in turn is going to bring people out. That's all it is. Not running them to death, not saying you're not any good, positive things. That's what it's all about. These stories and more, right here on The Outlet. Frank Solich will go down as a coaching legend in Athens. After taking over a struggling Ohio football program in 2005, he brought consistency and character to the team for 16 seasons. Solich announced his retirement yesterday, but his legacy will forever leave an impact on Bobcat football. Dylan Tyson looks at the legacy the winningest coach in the MAC leaves behind. In his first game at Peden Stadium, Solich led the Bobcats to an overtime victory against Pitt. The night ended on a magical pick six. Ohio Athletics already knew they had something special on their hands, and Solich recalls the night fondly. People downtown, they were out on the streets, man. You know, and um, certainly staying 16 years was not a surprise to me. Up to that point, the Bobcats hadn't had a winning season in five years, and they had never appeared in a MAC championship game. Obviously, it was a major re- rebuilding job. I was fortunate enough to really put together a great staff, and um, and so things kind of started to take off uh, at that point. He took over after six successful years at Nebraska. As a Bobcat, Solich led Ohio to 11 bowl game appearances, four MAC East titles, a top 25 ranking, and 115 wins, the most in MAC football history. But it isn't just the statistics that define Solich's career. Athletic director Julie Cromer spoke highly of his lifelong impacts. His true legacy is really in the men and the players who he coached, who went on to earn their degrees from Ohio. This job was so much more to Solich than just the win-loss record. He says he was fulfilled by supporting his players, both as a coach and as a mentor. It's all about relationships and, and um, watching your players maximize their abilities in the classroom, on the football field, continued with character development. Um, you know, and that's what we've been all about in, in this, uh, this program. Cromer announced yesterday that Solich will stay on as a special advisor to the football program. Meanwhile, former offensive coordinator Tim Albin will be promoted to head coach. Dylan Tyson, reporting for The Outlet. A local restaurant in Athens was improved Tuesday to open up a permanent location. The process for the owner was confusing at times, and a lot of that confusion came from the city's zoning code. Lexi Lepoff attended the Board of Zoning Appeals meeting to learn more. Dr. May's Thai Kitchen has been trying to find a new permanent home and found it at 333 East State Street. Athens Board of Zoning Appeals on Tuesday voted to approve them to operate, but it wasn't an easy process. Current zoning code states eating and drinking establishments are not able to operate within 200 feet of a residential area. But Dr. May's Thai Kitchen is a takeout restaurant. Owner May Rath says the code office sent her request to the zoning board to make a decision because the definition of what is considered an eating and drinking establishment is unclear. 
That's why he wants us to go through like interpretation to see if we fit or not. Because he said he kind of sort like look through for the definition and sometimes includes the takeout and some not include the takeout. So he doesn't know for sure which which way he should make decision. Takeout only establishments increased during the pandemic. Director of Code Enforcement David Riggs says the increase calls for the code to be updated. As we as we grow and business models change we get um, um, some of these codes that become obsolete or need to be revised. So we, we, we need to constantly work on those, uh, those code changes uh, to keep up with the current times. Dr. May's Thai Kitchen will not be the last business to face this issue if the code is not revised. Riggs says he wants businesses to come to Athens without facing challenges with these rules. It actually helps everybody. It helps the community. It helps the city. It helps the businesses, of course. And that, that's what we want to do. We want to kind of help move those forward uh, any way we can. Athens City Council and the Code Office are expected to continue work on updating the code to make the process clear and efficient. For the outlet, I'm Lexi Lepoff in Athens. With more than 40% of Ohioans unvaccinated against COVID, the Ohio Department of Health is urging more people to get those shots. They say it's critical with the way the highly contagious Delta variant of the disease is spreading. Statehouse correspondent Karen Castle reports. Close to 60% of Ohioans who are eligible for vaccines have gotten them, and that number is higher for people over 60. But it's lower among people under 50. And now there's a new reason for experts to urge vaccines. The Delta variant is, in fact, rapidly increasing and is on a trajectory to become the dominant strain in Ohio. Ohio Department of Health Medical Director Dr. Bruce Vanderhoff says those who haven't gotten the shots need the protection that they provide. 90% of Ohioans who've been hospitalized with COVID since April were not vaccinated. Vanderhoff says he understands why some people might be hesitant about taking a vaccine that's been around for just seven months, even though it's been rigorously tested and determined to be safe. However, um, I, I don't think it is uh, appropriate to, to make decisions on the basis of bad information. I think we need to look for sources of good information, reliable information. Vanderhoff says while there are risks to the vaccine, he describes them as tiny and says the benefits are, using his word, vast. Dr. Andy Thomas with the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center is a little more direct with his concern about the false claims that have been spreading about the COVID vaccines. I think those who express concerns about the vaccine having a chip that tracks their whereabouts or that magnetizes them, I think those are disinformation which is uh, beyond unfortunate. It's, it's disturbing. Thomas refers to some of the false claims made to the Ohio House Health Committee hearing testimony on a bill that would ban all mandatory vaccines from Thomas Rents in February and Sherry Tenpenny and Joanna Overholt in June. No child under 19 has died in Ohio from COVID-19 as of the last time I looked. People who've had these shots and now they're magnetized. There's been people who've long suspected that there was some sort of an interface, yet to be defined, an interface between what's being injected in these shots and all of the 5G towers. So this is what I found out. So I have a key and a bobby pin here. Explain to me why the key sticks to me. Again, these claims are untrue and false. The key did not stick to Overholt. Tenpenny's Twitter account has been shut down since that testimony. There have been 30 COVID deaths among Ohioans under 19 and nearly 80,000 cases reported by schools. Meanwhile, a video of Rents' testimony has been removed from YouTube. Rents is also an attorney who represented eight Ohioans in a suit against the Ohio Department of Health over its COVID orders, claiming they were, quote, tyranny. But the group dropped the suit in March.
OSU's Dr. Andy Thomas says with all that in mind, he's putting people who are hesitant about the vaccine into one of two buckets. The first bucket, where it's just disinformation, it's clearly things that are uh, irresponsibly being put out there by individuals where there's really no basis in, in fact. The second group, where there's hesitancy around some of these uh, potential complications from the vaccine, those are being studied. Cases and hospitalizations in Ohio have ticked up lately, but the Ohio Department of Health can't say whether that's the Delta variant or the result of July 4th gatherings. ODH does say the Delta variant, which is causing cases to climb in Asia and has brought new restrictions and shutdowns in Europe, is highly contagious and is a real threat to the unvaccinated, especially those under 50. Karen Kassler at the Ohio Public Radio Statehouse News Bureau. The HAPCAP program has officially kicked off the 2021 growing season with the opening of the Gloucester Community Garden. Madison Moore reports the HAPCAP initiative provides easy access to local and free healthy food. Athens County is the most food insecure county in Ohio, according to the Foundation for Appalachian Ohio. Hawking Athens Perry Community Action wants to help with the Gloucester Community Garden. The garden provides plots for people to grow their own produce, and the SNAP education program will show them how to use that produce. SNAP-Ed is actually going to come out and teach some healthy eating skills, how to use those fruits and vegetables that are grown in the garden, because it's one thing to grow fruits and vegetables, right? And then it's another thing to know what to do with them, too. The program will also teach people to buy local produce with their SNAP benefits, as well as plants and seeds to grow their own food at home. Food insecure Southeast Ohio residents are able to reserve a spot and take advantage of the free plots. Dupree says they want the garden to be used for many purposes. If there are people in Gloucester, Ohio who are homeless and they're hungry or even, you know, there's kiddos at home who don't have access to, you know, a, a pumpkin at Halloween time or, you know, a can of green beans or something like that, like, please just come up and grab something. That's what it's for. The HAPCAP for Health program team says they will organize a number of educational opportunities for those who participate in the program, including an introduction to the business of agriculture. HAPCAP is looking for community volunteers to help new gardeners and maintain the space. For The Outlet, I'm Madison Moore. After the break, a new segment discussing religion and its origins, as well as more news from Southeast Ohio. Then represent our university as best as we can. Go out there and compete together as one, play as a team, and uh, make Bobcat Nation proud. That's, that's all we want to do. These stories and more, right here on The Outlet. Religion, spirituality have long been an important part of what makes community. Benjamin Byers sat down with an Ohio University professor to delve into the origins of religion and how religions can evolve based on the region they are practicing. Associate Professor Brian Collins works in the Classics and Religious Department at Ohio University. He specializes in Hinduism, Buddhism, comparative mythology, as well as the paranormal and the occult. 
We talked about the beginnings of religion and the context in which religion was born. The act of burying the dead for many people is an extremely important symbol of religious significance as the bodies prepared for the afterlife. There is evidence of this throughout history, including the burial of specific objects with Egyptian pharaohs in order to help them navigate their afterlife. Many scholars try and look at burying of the dead to try and find religion at its earliest form, which supposedly proves that those people believed or understood that there was an invisible reality that was more than just their physical nature. I think that's probably a pretty good argument. It's kind of hard to say. All we know is that they buried people with uh, with tools and with things like that. I mean, the Neanderthals did that. So it wasn't just uh, modern humans, but it was uh, also other proto-human uh, species. So uh, th- that, though, is, it's, it's so hard to say whether that would count as religion, but it really all depends on how you're, how you're um, defining religion. So if religion is just any kind of supernatural belief, then yes, it would start with grave goods. And I think it's as good a place as any uh, to say that it's evidence of something that could become religion or some idea that was, that was uh, necessary to have religion. The only issue with connecting the burial of the dead is that many other creatures in the animal kingdom seem to have similar practices. According to an article written by the BBC, elephants have been seen to almost form a parade after the death of an elephant in the same group, which could possibly be just like how humans gather to pay respects over a deceased member of their community. Collins believes while animals have very complex beliefs and ideas, he would not call that religion because of the lack of speech and stories. But, I mean, maybe they have sort of an idea that is that proto-humans did as well, but the proto-humans developed it into something else. I think that's probably saying too much to think that animals, just because they have sort of rituals, which they all do. Rituals, not just about, I mean, uh, really intelligent animals have rituals about mating, of course. Also, insects have mating rituals and dealing with the dead. And, uh, I mean, other things as well. Ritual fighting, uh, sort of dueling with each other. But that's all just a social life. So then for humans, what exactly makes a religion? In other terms, what are the basic fundamental needs in a belief that makes it a religion? Professor Collins believes that would be the belief in a higher power. Religion probably uh, would depend on a sort of a bare bones uh, religion would have to have some kind of a of a non-human power that you could communicate with. So something beyond what you see in the world, or at least something that's imagined beyond what you see in the world. I mean, even if the, I mean, it's possible and it's probable that rocks, mountains, rivers, I mean, they're still sacred. They probably were sacred a long time ago, but they were sacred because there was something else there. Uh, And so I think having that something else there that you can communicate with is, is, is fundamental, but you know, that, that could even be argued. Why would humans need this belief in a higher power though? Could we go through human existence without it? The most common belief is that humans developed religion as a way to explain their surroundings with just a rudimentary understanding. Professor Collins says he believes ancient people did understand the world around them and the roots of religion can be found more in the need for community. 
Right. Well, there's a it, the, the, the the common uh, shorthand for that is the social is the sacred, which is to say that the social norms that we have to have in order to live together become um, sort of a transcendent idea, and that and they're associated with some uh, maybe some lawgiver or some order of the universe. Like they either come down from on high or they're just part of the way things are and they're, they're sort of a deep understanding of, of reality. Uh, and, and so that those those things, that's what Durkheim said. Now, there's other theories that are more recent that sort of build on that. Uh, there was a guy named Robert Bella who, uh, he passed away recently, but he was a, a great scholar of religion who wrote a huge book about religion and, and human evolution where his argument was a more nuanced one about what's called um, niche building. So that we, we have to, to survive as humans, we have to build a particular niche for ourselves, an ecological niche, where we're not going to freeze to death or dehydrate or starve. We have to sort of make, remake the world around us so that we can uh, live in it. Part of niche building was remaking the kind of uh, our, our social worlds uh, to be more survivable and religion functions as, as niche building. They say it, it's a part of human evolution, um, not the evolution of the species, but the evolution of the of uh, humans' lives, which is their social lives. The need was based in a desire to keep the peace and help society thrive. The earliest law code known to modern humans, Hammurabi's Code, has many examples of the gods creating these laws and examples of these gods enforcing them in the form of Hammurabi ruling over the land. You could also say that when you have to tell somebody that you have divine power, then you're already in a state where people are thinking about that less. In an earlier state, it might have been that you would not need to claim divine power, but you would just have it by who you were in the group. And so when you look at the Bible, you see similar patterns where in the beginning, uh, the Bible's you know historical. It's the history of the people. In the beginning, they talked to God directly. And then by the time of, of the kings of, of Israel, they have to get prophets and seers and um, oracles to hear God's message because they, they're, they're separated from him. And the idea is that is that as time goes on, the sort of the religion loses its force, uh, and 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 culture kind of takes over, and you have to do more and more in order to recapture what was used to be intuitive about religion. By the time you have Hammurabi's code, you're already that's the beginning of the decline of religion, which has a very long decline. How can we relate all this to our Southeast Ohio communities? Even in Appalachia, people find ways to support this sense of community that religion brings into their lives. The need for religion has taken many different forms in our region, from magic healers to more mainstream congregations practicing Christianity and Buddhism. The, what you're talking about is sort of a folk culture. And, you know, in, in, I think this is the same everywhere. There's official religion, which is what happens, which is connected to an institution. And like a church or parish, a pastor, uh, and and then there are the problems of everyday life, which people tend to deal with uh, in different ways. So, I mean, in in Appalachia, for instance, uh, you have people who who are capable of um, of solving certain 
problems for you it usually has to do with healing what we might call a traditionalist a root doctor that's what they call them in the south but someone who who has the knowledge of plants or other things who gives who gives um you know charms or spells to people who need them something you wouldn't necessarily go and pray to god for uh, but you might go to uh, an old woman who lives in the woods for so there's definitely stories of that in Appalachian folklore of people who have um, power or or knowledge, more like a, a kind of a traditional knowledge that is that is has supernatural elements to it, but is not necessarily connected to religion. For the outlet, I'm Benjamin Byers. Welcome back. Ohio Governor Mike DeWine signed a bill yesterday that prevents Ohio schools from requiring vaccines that have not received full FDA approval. It applies to all three of the COVID-19 vaccines, which were approved only for emergency use, despite rigorous testing and clinical trials. The bill was initially written to simplify enrollment for children of military families, but was drastically amended on the Senate floor to include the vaccine provisions. The House concurred on the amendments on a party-line vote. Before the bill, only a handful of Ohio schools were planning to mandate vaccination, most notably Cleveland State University and the College of Worcester. Ohio basketball may be back sooner than you think. Nick Veland has more on the team of alumni set to take the floor for the basketball tournament. Ohio University has had many Cinderella stories in its history. Now some players from the 2012 team that went dancing to the Sweet 16 hope to make another run, this time with a million dollars on the line. The TBT is a 64-team tournament made up of former college basketball players, and for the first time, Ohio 1804 will represent Ohio University alumni who wanted to get in on the action this year. Jerome Simmons will be head coach and hopes to make the Bobcat fans proud. They represent our university as best as we can. Go out there and compete together as one, play as a team, and uh, make Bobcat Nation proud. That's that's all we want to do. The tournament gives Bobcat fans another chance to root for players like Reggie Keeley, Stevie Taylor, and Nick Kellogg. A throwback to the team that upset Michigan and South Florida in the 2012 NCAA tournament. GM Kenny Brown says the fan base was one of the reasons he wanted to build the team. It's because... I know and you know and all Bobcat Nation knows that there is a uh, immense love and I, for, the, for the school and anything green and white and Bobcat related. So I knew that I could get the, uh, the body to, to rally behind it. And Reggie Healy said the love is returned by the players who decided to suit up. I'm a martyr. You know, I owe a lot to OU. And uh, it's just, it's, um, it's actually an honor just to be able to play with them in the TBT. Going into the tournament, the Bobcats are in a familiar spot. They sit as the 14 seed. Kenny Brown says this is just another chance for Ohio 1804 players to make some history. These guys have been here before, that exact number seed, and uh, they understand what it takes. The road to the $1 million prize will be long, but Kenny Brown hopes it will end with a trip down memory lane. A party bus to Athens the night after, straight from Dayton in the championship, would, would not be, uh, I could almost guarantee that that's going to happen. For the outlet, I'm Nick Veland. Ohio 1804 will take on the alumni from Xavier, zip em up on Saturday the 24th. Federal Hawking has struggled the past few seasons fielding a full football team. 
But Dylan Tyson reports new head coach Brad Woodson is building a new culture that could allow the Lancers to compete at full strength. It was week six of the 2019 high school football season. For many teams, just another Friday night under the lights. But for the federal hawking Lancers, it would mark a significant turning point. A string of injuries reduced their roster to so few players that the Lancers had to forfeit the rest of that season's games. I felt like that it wasn't fair to like everybody, the coaches, the staff, the people that are supporters, just everybody. It was just the latest in a series of hardships. For the five years prior, the Lancers had won only one game, long haunted by a 40-game losing streak. And in 2020, Federal Hawking left the Tri-Valley Football Conference in favor of smaller school matchups. Despite picking up two wins, the team only played a mere five-game season, once again forfeiting their final weeks. Still, hope remained among the FedHawk faithful. At the end of the day, I just feel like as a family, as a unit, uh, we still had the most heart out of any teams. The future of the program was in question. Incoming students just weren't joining the team. It looked like FedHawk would have to join the smattering of Ohio schools that are moving to eight-man football. That's when they hired Coach Brad Woodson. My question was, who in Southeastern Ohio plays eight-man? You know, for our young people here, I don't think eight-man fits the, the narrative. Woodson has coached Ohio football for decades, serving as an early mentor for NFL stars Le'Veon Bell and Dwayne Smoot. And when he arrived at Federal Hawking, he was astonished by the team's brand new indoor training facility. I'm like, wow, I ain't never seen nothing like this. Walked into the locker room, that's a professional locker room. I took pictures because I knew my friends wouldn't understand. They said, there's no way. Federal Hawking does not have a locker room like that. Because why? They're 3-50. and 50. They equate wins with what they have. It's not the case. It's not the case. He believes this team has the talent, the resources, and the heart to succeed. But what they've been missing? Confidence, competitiveness, and pride in the sport. To me, I see see value, I see relationship building, which in turn is going to bring people out. That's all it is. Not running them to death, not saying you're not any good, positive things. That's what it's all about. And hoping to instill that culture, Woodson has begun hanging jerseys, printing banners, and framing photos of the team's workouts around the new training facility. This right here, this is positive. They're saying, oh, coaches hang up jerseys? Not folded in a tote? Washing the clothes? They may not have that at home. Those are basic things. With the help of Coach Woodson, the Lancers were able to press on with a traditional 11-man season. For now, his focus is on completing the 2021 year, but he hasn't forgotten about paving the road ahead. Now, those eighth graders, God willing, I have them for four years. And every year, I'm teaching them a little bit more about the field. What's that going to What's going to be like when they're sophomores and juniors? That's how you go to the program. Some think, oh, I need a quarterback. I need a running back. No, you have everything you need right around you, if you know how to build it. Coach says he hopes the team will be ready for Tri-Valley Conference competition in the years to come. Dylan Tyson, reporting for the outlet. If you'd like to see how the Lancers perform this year, Gridiron Glory Season 22 will be airing this fall on Fridays at 11.30 p.m. on WOUB Public Media. Next to the natural wonders of Hawking Hill sits the Bishop Educational Gardens. Taylor Burnett reports each year hundreds of people buzz in to celebrate the arts and flowers of the region. 
Lilyfest blossomed this past weekend after COVID-19 sent the festival online in 2020. Some COVID restrictions were still in place, like requiring reservations to attend. The celebration featured live music and over 60 artisans selling their wares. And master gardeners were on hand to answer questions. People came from all around to enjoy the lifelong work of Bobby Bishop, who started the garden with her late husband Bruce in the 70s. Lilyfest came in the 80s after Bruce suggested they move a local pottery and art show Bobby was involved in to the property. From there, Lilyfest grew, and Bishop still works daily in the gardens and helps run the festival each year. I'm very pleased with what it's become. Um, my husband were still alive, he probably wouldn't believe we're still doing it, to tell you the truth. The garden wasn't always the sprawling property it is today. Bishop and her late husband always knew they wanted to protect the land while using it as an educational space. Bishop and the board of the garden are focused on education, something they do when welcoming in the community, especially the children. As much as she loves it, Bishop said it took a lot of hard work. <laughs> over the years. But Garden Board member Krista Myers says the process is well worth it for the value it brings to the community. So I think this gives an opportunity for kids and adults to get out into nature, um, learn a bit about nature. Um, we have um, different uh, native plants that's important. We have people who talk to you about that. The gardens also highlight the importance of land conservation and stewardship. The Ohio Certified Volunteer Naturals Program out of Ohio State is partnered with the garden. It offers classes in areas related to nature that interest people. They can go on to volunteer in parks and areas where their new skills can be of service. The group is out every year at Lilyfest. Alicia Miller, an Ohio certified volunteer naturalist, says she hopes to spread knowledge about nature and recruit others to join. And we're so disconnected now from nature that we don't realize how important it is that we need to take responsibility for taking care of Mother Earth. And if you're, it's not because you're uncaring, it's not because they're bad people, it's lack of education in the subject. Art is also an important part of Lilyfest, with over 60 artists on the premise. Artisans and artists like Bishop come to sell their wares, but also share their passions. Um, for me, my art, my pottery is my way to center myself and to a lot of people meditate. I meditate while I'm working on the potter's bed. And it's getting in touch with myself. Whether it's through the flora or the art, Lilyfest organizers hope to offer everyone a chance to get in touch with themselves. For The Outlet, I'm Taylor Burnett in Rockbridge. That's all we have for you this week. Thanks for joining us. The Outlet is produced each week by me, Michael Weirick. We're edited by Aaron Payne and David Forster. Adam Rich is our technical assistant, and our theme music is performed by Ryan Gabos. Subscribe to The Outlet on SoundCloud or Spotify, or find us online at woub.org. You can also follow us on Twitter at Outlet underscore WOUB and Instagram at WOUB underscore Outlet. We'll be back next week with more stories from Southeast Ohio and the surrounding region.